Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. I wanted to say a big thank you to all of the listeners who've been supporting the show I'm up to episode 26, which is pretty amazing. I'm so just amazed by the engagement from listeners, um, from the inquiries that I've been getting, and for people reaching out and offering ideas for future episodes um, and sharing some of their experiences working as a social worker in various parts of their career. So thank you to all those listeners. Uh, And feel free to reach out. I love to hear from you. You can contact me on LinkedIn uh, through the Facebook group or you can send me an email uh, which is at marie at insidesocialwork.com. Today's episode, I chat with Ashton Hayes. Ashton started off as a paralegal. Uh, like a number of social workers, uh, we have some of us have had careers in other areas before, uh, some in similar fields and some in wildly different fields. Ashton shares with listeners how she felt working in family law and what she noticed in particular towards children and feeling that they were maybe left out of the conversation, maybe their voice wasn't heard. And she started to question whether that was the best fit for her being a paralegal. She decided to embark on a social work journey and now works with clients that include young people, couples, families, and has a particular interest in working with trauma. Ashton is also passionate about working with other social workers and offers supervision individually and in groups. So you can head over to her website, um, which is at Willow Tree Wellbeing, and there'll be details for that in the show notes. So you can find Ashton, get in contact with her and inquire about some of those group sessions or individual supervision. A big shout out again to everybody who's been listening and if you want to help keep the show going you can make a contribution via the um, website. There's a PayPal link there and that helps keep the show up and running and continuing to provide you with guest speakers and people who are happy to share their social work journey. Here's my interview with Ashton. Welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. Today I'm chatting with Ashton Hayes. Welcome Ashton. Thanks for having me. So we, um, we've got a few things we're going to get through today, but do you want to tell the audience a bit about your journey and how you wound up on the dark side in social work? Yeah, sure. So um, I had started out in law, so I was a paralegal and studying my law degree sort of part-time and working full-time. And uh, I was kind of travelling around, so I actually started my law degree in the UK. And I absolutely loved it. But one of the things that I noticed when I was working as a paralegal, I worked in family law, was that um, children were being sort of left behind. There was all this concentrating in divorce proceedings on um, the parents, but there didn't seem to be a lot of talk about the children. And the more work that I did, the more I started to see um, neglect emerging and there were some abuse issues and so I decided to move out of my fancy law firm and do some legal aid work and really concentrate in child protection and then I had a bit of a change of circumstances and I came back to Australia and 
I realised that social work was going to be the place that I was really going to be able to make a difference. Um, and so, yeah, I switched over to social work and as a mature student and things just went from there. I really felt that I had found my people um, after travelling around and kind of trying out some different things. And as much as I love the legal side of things and um, I really enjoyed that part of the work, I really felt like being a social worker would get me on the ground and really be able to help people face to face. So that's, that's what I did. Um, and then I kind of found myself doing a lot of child protection work and family work, which I really loved. And I felt like I still kind of had that yearning towards understanding a little bit more about the legal side of things and forensics. So I then went on and did a master's degree in criminology. So um, that's been a really interesting journey for me. So I guess I've worked in, I've done lots of family work and casework and worked in management and I ended up kind of in a senior management role uh, running a, a large child protection program and part of that work involved um, really wanting to be able to support the families to maintain um, connection with their children and have their children at home where it was safe to do so and as part of that I kind of restructured the um, the team that I was running and and brought in some more therapeutic supports and and then I decided you know what being in senior management I really miss working with people um, and so I went into some forensic counselling and then I opened my own practice and here I am so um, part of my practice is I'm, I'm a trauma specialist so I do a lot of work um, in trauma work I do generalist work as well and the other arm of my practice is supervision, which I absolutely love doing. Supervision comes up so often and I want to um, go right back to your work in fa early family and child protection work. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember my first placement was in child protection and I think um, people really maybe become desensitised to but forget just how shocking it is to come from textbook learning and maybe working in a bit of resi care or disability work or even something completely different like retail or hospitality to be mm -hmm. thrown into a placement where you're seeing some of the most pointy end cases mm -hmm. out there, mm -hmm. how overwhelming that is. And even now yeah. I'd probably would, would be like, yeah, that's fine. That's just, I've, I've got my, my routine set up and my boundaries and my self care. And, but when you first start, that's, that's just like, it's like you get hit by a bus. It really, I felt like it was just such a shock. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like coming from being a paralegal and then thinking, yeah, I want to switch to social work, mm -hmm. what those first few jobs felt like? Yeah, I mean, I think like most social workers, I was so passionate about the work that I wanted to do and I threw myself at it absolutely threw myself into it and I was really lucky I was offered a job before I left university and so I knew I had a job to go to and I knew um, I, I kind of knew the area that I was going to be working in but yes it, it, it was incredibly confronting and it was very hard work and I think that um, I think that when you go into that kind of work, you, you kind of set yourself up to go, well, 
I'm really wanting to help. I, I really love what I do and so therefore I will just work and work and work and work and work and then I'll fall in a heap. And I think that that happens a lot with new grads and it's really, really important to, um, for us as, as the more senior social, social workers, I think, to support new grads and that's why I really love doing supervision and supporting new grads um, through, their, through those first couple of years of being out there. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think we forget because we just, like you said, it's just that work, work, work and you keep going and you think, but I can suck this up because I've got these benefits or this privilege or I've got a home to go to or safety and we can push that aside. And I really try to mm -hmm. highlight for people that you, can, you can't sprint a marathon. You can mm -hmm. do more for your client group over your career if you can stay fresh in that career otherwise you burn out and you want to do something else well that's exactly right yeah and i think um i i think what happens is that people aren't putting their boundaries in early on and, and i feel like we hear a lot about boundaries and self-care and all of those really important things but i don't know that students you know fourth year students and new graduates really take that on board because i think there is so much to take in you know you, you want to bring theory to practice and you want to be ethical in in your work and you want to be able to help people as much as you can and then i think some people kind of perceive of having um external supervision particularly as something that's um you know more than more than what's needed or or it's expensive so people don't want to do it or it takes them away from the work except the thing is supervision is part of your work if you're a social worker supervision is part of your work how do you reframe it for some people where and i, I think maybe therapy does this a little better than sort of more general like social work roles but this idea of yourself as the therapist so you can't compartmentalize those things. Our biggest tool often is, is our connection with clients is our ability to hold mm -hmm. space, to gently challenge, to encourage, to support, to show empathy. They're not skills you can do on autopilot. We, we all know, we all can tell when someone that's close to us is a little bit shitty or upset. You can mm. just, you can see it in their face or in their micro expressions and our clients sometimes are even more sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's one of the challenges I'm trying to, um, to get people to recognise is you can't do that good work mm -hmm. if you're not feeling great, if you're not in a good headspace. And part of doing that work well is the supervision, is the self-care, is the yeah. professional development. Like it, it's part of your toolbox. Exactly. And I think that that's a really important point that you make that it is part of your tool, toolbox to be, because to be able to do this kind of work, I think you need to have um, resources to draw on. And we all kind of talk about not being able to drink from an empty cup. And I think that that's a really critical part of um, understanding what it's like to be a social worker, particularly on the front lines. If you start out each day, say, for example, in an ideal world, you get up, you have a nourishing breakfast, you have a lovely commute where you listen to a podcast on the way to work and then you go in and everyone greets you and um, then you're off and running and doing your job. So your cup is full, right? So, so you're feeling 
resilient, you're feeling buoyed up. And then throughout the day, if you're subjected to um, people who have been traumatised, often hypervigilant and, and um, untrusting of um, intervention. And so, therefore, throughout the day, you are going to be on the receiving end of some unpleasant stuff. You may be um, have a clash with colleagues. You may be running late. All of those things that take from your cup. If you're starting off with just a few drops in the bottom of your cup, people are going to know that you don't have anything to give. And people that we work with oftentimes in, in a social workspace are already feeling marginalised and unheard. If you present as being unable to hear them and hold space for them, then why on earth would they want to engage with you? And you're going to feel pretty yuck by the end of the day if that's how your day is going each time. Yeah, and I really and I feel for people in the industry because it is a job that's so demanding without mm. often maybe the recognition or um, you know appropriate remuneration for the level of skill that it takes. Mm. You you know your points of you know some of the either clients or people you're working with are already either traumatized or stressed or overwhelmed or feel marginalized. That's why they need the service. So they're mm. so much more sensitive to that and require even more from you and often the services that they attend are so overworked and so stretched that it's just a bit of a cycle like your your cup's empty or close to empty and then you've got clients who have great needs and you're you know it hurts your heart to see the systemic injustices or the mm. whatever it's just it's it can be really tough and I don't want to um people to feel like we don't get that because it's it's overwhelmingly difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I just think that one of the things that people, I think, um, don't understand when when they come out of university and they're going into their first role is that you can actually, you are allowed to ask for support yourself. It doesn't diminish your ability as a social worker when you ask for support. If you have an expectation of the clients around you, particularly when you have involuntary clients, um, there's an expectation that they um, ask for your support. Well, that's what you need to model. You need to say when you have, don't have the answers to everything, look, I don't know that, but I'll find out for you. And then go back to your supervisor or your, your manager, team leader, whoever it is you report to and say, listen, I need some support in this area. How can we, how can we get to a space where I'm getting what I need to do to do my job. Now, your team leader or your manager might be really overwhelmed and overworked as well, which is why, you know, making making inquiries into what external supervision you can access is really, really important. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting one. And I I've had I've been on both sides where I've been the one to approach someone and the response not be great. And then yeah. I've used either my own counselling or my own supervision um, to try and work around organisational change, organisational challenges. And I've been on the end where someone's come to me and I've probably been a little bit dismissive because it caught me off guard or I was busy. So it's a constant conversation and you hope that we can use those same skills of unconditional positive regard or empathy for not just our clients but our colleagues. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. So tell me, I wanted to hear, but how did you get into um, trauma work and um, what are some of the, I guess, modalities or things that you use working with trauma? Um, so years ago I was working in um, a program where I was in a team leader role and I still held a client load but but I was a team leader as well and one of one of the team came to me and they said to me I really want to do this training and and it looked really interesting and I said um great I might actually come along with you and that was a trauma-informed care and that was the first time that I'd really been um I guess, in a space of being able to really understand trauma. So we're going back about maybe 10, 11 years ago now where it wasn't as recognised or it wasn't as well discussed as it is now. And so that just opened up a door for me. And from that moment, I um, began to um, introduce trauma-informed care into the way that we ran the team and then organisationally as well. That's um yeah I think you're right with it not getting as much vocal or airtime it's those who've been in the space can see the roots and the history you know for quite a while but it's definitely coming into more mainstream conversation and I think that's such a I'm so optimistic about where that's heading yeah it's it's look it's just so important I think that there's there people who are um have experienced, for example, homelessness or family violence or um, neglect, anything where they've experienced a traumatic event, uh, it's important not to pathologise a person's experiences when they come to see you. So we don't want to put people into boxes of, oh, well, you must have bipolar disorder or you must have schizophrenia or you must have this or you must have that. And it was really interesting, actually. I'm going to show how old I am now. I was re-watching, um, a, I was re-watching some episodes of The Golden Girls yesterday as part of my own self-care. <laughs> How, and can I just flag that I was very little the first time around. <laughs> but um, there was an episode where one of the characters became unwell. And so she was just told, um, You're, you, you have um, a mental health diagnosis. That's what's wrong with you. You have a mental health diagnosis. And she went to see multiple, interestingly, male, older male doctors who kept saying to her, no, you're... Um, you're mentally ill and it was just really interesting that there was no discussion around what's going on for you what's happened for you where do you sit in the system and that is an important discussion for everybody to have all of my work is trauma-informed my work with my counseling clients is trauma-informed my work with my supervision clients is trauma-informed and I also run a leadership program and that's about becoming a trauma-informed leader so everything is about where you sit, what, where, what is your attachment style, how has your experience been within the system, how did you come to your role? So you might have somebody who um, started school a little bit earlier and so was at university sort of right on their 18th birthday. They're coming out of a qualification at 21 and 22. That's incredibly young versus people who are coming out of that qualification in their 30s, 40s and maybe even 50s. And so 
if we treat everybody the same, if we put everybody into one small box and category, then we don't understand where they're from, what it is that they can offer, and why it is people are responding in the way that they are. So I, I think a trauma-informed approach suit it is suitable across the board. And I think the way you explained it doesn't just look at your, you know, sort of big T traumas that are quite, um, we can all objectively kind of say, yeah, that's a traumatic event. It's all the little yeah. ones of missed, missed connection, missed opportunity. And also maybe it's not as loaded as that. It's just understanding your, your attachment style and your family of origin and why you react to certain things the way you react. And I don't think, and that never stops. Like yeah. even in my own supervision, you know, I do a lot of couples work and family work and there'll always be a, a moment where you think, oh, I'm really aligned with that person. I wonder why. Or, yeah. you know, and I found when I was younger, I did a lot of work with young people. I'd be like, I'd be really on their side. I'd be like, because I still feel like I'm that 17 year old fighting with my parent and I get it. Yeah. And then I'd be working with other clinicians who were parents and they're like, that person's being so unreasonable because they were <laughs> a parent. And so it's interesting that the same theories and philosophies but we're still there. We had the same education, but then there's a, yourself that comes into that. And oh, absolutely. It, and it's, that might be a lot gentler than talking about trauma, but it's, it's the same kind of idea of reflecting and seeing where you're at and understanding your own triggers because we have them. We all have them. Absolutely, yeah. And that's kind of the work you almost do yourself. And I'm sure you've done with trauma work or attachment work uh, and I do a lot with family therapy and, and ACT, is you have to kind of apply it to yourself first. Oh, yeah, absolutely so we're, do. We're, not, we're, we, we're going through this, so we need to, you know, to, in family therapy, we have to do our own family of origin stuff and we have to understand our triggers and where we've yeah. come from. And in ACT, um, I, I lose a lot of ACT, um, you know, you've got to do, work out your own values and how you're living to those values. It's not just textbook, you know, what's the negative thought? I'm going to challenge it. Here's the outcome. Here's the whatever. Yeah. It's a lot more integrated and it's really demanding. Yeah. And, and it's, that's kind of the work. I, I use that in my supervision and my leadership as well, because it's not just the therapeutic work that you do with a client or the interactions that you even have if you're, you know, if you're one of those social workers who kind of has a very short term interaction, you still can have, um, a big effect on the person in your life and therefore you need to understand why it is that you're responding to this client this way or this client that way or even with your supervisor like when you're choosing a supervisor I think I would say to kind of people who are new graduates and students like when you're choosing a supervisor it's okay to um, see if you fit with them don't just make the assumption that they're the supervisor they have experience so therefore you just have to do what they say because you don't at all. If you if you get to understand where that supervisor is coming from and the kind of modalities they use and what their kind of ethics and values are, then you can see if they align with you. If they don't, find another supervisor. That's okay. Yeah, I think that, and that's the benefit you get when you're looking for it externally. And some people are more privileged, um, obviously, than others to have more accessibility. Yeah. Um, and one thing I would tell people to do is if, if you, you can now now we've been forced to be using a lot more video technology but a lot of people were happy to do that if you ask them they might not advert i mean allied health practitioners aren't the great at promoting themselves 
Sometimes they have really daggy websites or really ugly business card. Don't let that deter you. They're often really good practitioners. <laughs> um, they just don't have maybe a design sense. You can sure. still contact them and off, ask for a few minute, like a video co- conference call to see if you're a good fit. And people will do it. Like I won't knock people back if they want to just get a feel for things. Um, and you can you can look for interstate. You know, I've got some of my um, peers have a th- someone that they contact internationally if it's for a very specialised skill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. I I am available. I mean, I guess we've all been forced at the moment to be able to use technology. Um, and I certainly make myself available um, interstate because I think that there are people who you know it's a it's a white a big country there's going to be lots of people you don't fit with and there's going to be lots of people that you do fit with and i guess you know at the moment particularly we are in a position of like you said being able to call someone up have a quick video con see if you fit i think that that's a really positive thing and i think that um you know people often feel like and and i did too you know when i first started i was very lucky when i first started out i was recruited before i left university and so i had a job to go to um that you know in the grand scheme of things was reasonable pay at the time but i did i was not supported to get external supervision and i think that that was a real shame and so that's why i created my it, um, my supervision group for new grads because it's really low cost. It is a group supervision space, but people still um, get to be heard. People still get to do case presentations, which I think can be so important for new grads, you know, because you're kind of second guessing. Wow, at uni, I had my textbooks here and my lecturer there and we could nut it out during break. But when it's real life, it, it's a lot, the time frame is a lot shorter and it's more confronting. And so, um, I remember thinking, I wish there had kind of been a space where I'd been just with a whole bunch of other social workers and be able to talk through my concerns and not feel, uh, I guess, a little bit um, like maybe I wasn't doing my job well because I needed a bit of extra support at that time. And so that's why I developed that kind of opportunity for people to be able to join in on. And we'll get we'll get to that because I think that's really interesting. I do like what you said around not feeling bad that it's you need a bit of extra support because I think maybe and I think it's changing a lot. But we try to fit into these boxes ourselves of thinking this is how I should look and act and feel. And part of having good boundaries is actually being able to tell people I need a bit more time to digest this or I work well like this, and having mm-hmm. a bit of courage to say. I need more time or I work slower or can you be quiet so I can focus and figuring out what it is that you need based on your preference and learning and where you're at that day to say that this is how I work best and not Mm -hmm. to feel bad about that because if you come back down to your values, if you love the work you do and you're passionate about it, you're going to do your best work if your cup's full, if you're kind of ready to go. And so you advocate for yourself and have those boundaries around what you can and can't do and what you need to -hmm. do your job well. And that's, that's the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. But it's surprising the amount of, um, 
new workers that I've spoken to throughout the course of my work when I'm delivering training, that sort of thing, who don't have supervision or have uh, internal supervision, part of which is operational. So that's an important part of the of supervision that you do in your role, of course. You know, people need to know are we meeting numbers, are we able to provide this service in a way that's going to, you know, maintain the whatever um, service you're running. But I think that um, being able to have a space where you're not concentrating on operational things, where you're just talking about um, having your professional needs met is a really important space to have. Mm. So tell um, the audience a bit about your group. So what gap did you see? You mentioned a little bit about not having that support as a grad Mm. yourself. Mm -hmm. Start us, you know, the journey and where you ended up. So I guess one of the positive things as a new grad is that um, I did have work with someone who was very supportive, but they were not a social worker. And I began to notice as I went through um, my career that I needed to touch base with um, more experienced professionals who understood about social work ethics and values and who could support me through, um, you know, developing and maintaining my boundaries as well as helping me um, cope, I guess, sometimes with, Um, being the powerful person to my client, so in a client space, you you are the person with power, but feeling powerless within the system. And so I also kind of felt like, you know, when I was at university, I had great groups of people um, around me that you could, you know, go to the cafes with or go to to a bar with and debrief and have a talk about things. But um, once I kind of got out into the field, Particularly in my first job, I was the only social worker So that made things a little bit tricky. And so I guess some of the feedback that I've received over the years is that I can't afford it. It's too expensive or I can't take time out of my job. And I, I always find that a really interesting one because supervision is part of the job. So it's interesting when people say, oh, well, I don't have time. Um, you need to make time because um, it, it, it's it is actually going to be about the quality of work that you provide if you're not able to kind of have a supervisor. So the price thing kept coming up and I get it, you know, social workers, we do not do it for the money. Um, And um, so I am lucky enough to um, work with some other people who are really great with generating ideas and um, I just came up with the group supervision. So group supervision online is at a significantly reduced price than it would be if it was one-to-one in the clinic. And you're with peers, so so the idea of mine is that you need to be new grad up to two years post-grad. So that's a specific group. I have groups at different levels, but that specific group means that people have only been qualified up to two years, so they're not years and years and years in the field. They're having really similar experiences, even if their jobs are really different the experience of being newly qualified is quite similar. There's a lot of that second guessing, you know, that idea of, oh, am I doing it right or am I, is this, is this, have I, have I taken this theory into my practice and, you know, feeling 
very much like, am I doing the right thing? Plus, also, I'm overwhelmed. And anyone who goes into a busy social work world, you know, you kind of get the work thrown at you and they go, go. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I developed this group. So um, there's, a, there's a number of groups. So it's up to six. So there's no more than six people in any one group at any one time. And that's because I really want everybody to have a go. You know, everyone gets a chance to present a case. And um, everybody gets a chance to check in and everyone gets a chance to debrief. Um, and that goes over a six-month period. So I, I, I run them depending on, you know, when there's a group of people available that want to do it. And it's usually I try and run it um, on a Monday night. Um, that means that people are sort of fresh at the start of their week and um, they, they, they're not taking time out of their work at that particular point in time and because it's all online people from anywhere in Australia can join in. Great and do you have some uh, links or resources so those listening who might want to get involved or learn more how will they get in touch or find out more? Sure so you can just come to my website which is willowtreewellbeing.com there's a link on the website for professionals and um, you can click on whichever you want so there's several different links and it just sends me an email automatically um, and people can people can do that. So if we rewind back to right at the start of your career, if you could tell your your newly graduated self any words of wisdom or tips, what would you do? What would you say? Um, I would say you look after yourself. I know it's repeated. I know self-care goes over and over again and people are talking about it all the time. But I would say that there's two things that are really important. I think that um, accessing external supervision, I wish I had known that that was an opportunity for me right from the start, that there was no reason that I couldn't do that. I think that that was really, really something that was really missing, um, that I needed to be able to talk about how I felt in my workplace as well as talking about, and how that kind of impacted my work as well as talking about the work itself. And I think the other thing, and this is critical for social workers, is don't engage in comparative suffering, okay? Because, yes, you are the person in power when you are particularly in a child protection space. Um, but, you know, working in housing um, and drug and alcohol work and family violence, all of those spaces, when you come in as the social worker, you do have the power. Um, but please be aware that when you engage in comparative suffering, which is um, that must be terrible for, for them, so I, I need to say at least I have a house, at least I have food, at least I have a job, what you begin to do then is um, project that comparative suffering onto other people. So if you engage in that, what, what you can, what you run the risk of doing is then going, well, then that person should be grateful for, or at least that person has this. And that's not fair. That's not your experience. You can sit in a space of saying, I feel rotten today. I feel terrible today and so this is what I'm going to do to be able to be the best social worker I can be for my client. Not I feel terrible today but at least I have a house 
Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's actually come up a bit now and I think some people have coined the term kind of toxic um, optimism where um, now with the social distancing, people are shutting down others for venting on how they feel yeah. and being like, well, you should be grateful for this, this, and it's like you can be grateful mm-hmm. and truly grateful and also acknowledge that something sucks and there's pain and suffering and grief and loss and overwhelm or uncertainty without having to be like, I shouldn't feel this way because I should be lucky, blah, blah, blah. Like that, that's endless. You can't live like that. You can't be like, oh, I've injured this part of my body, but someone else hurts even more. So I can't feel the pain. Like exactly. It actually then makes it hard to connect with others and it feels like they don't care. Exactly. And you can say, I'm grateful that I have a home, but today I just feel really low and terrible. That does not take away from the other person's mm. um, experience, but you're acknowledging yourself and being able to do that is part of your self-care. Yeah, that's, and I really, I, I really um, like the way you frame the, the bit about you can be, when we look at a client relationship, we're the ones with the power, but then we, how disempowered we can feel and powerless in the system. Yeah. And that recipe can lead to such high levels of burnout because we're feeling for our clients. Most people do this work to support, to care, and then they feel so powerless in instigating bigger change and that can lead to so much pain. Exactly. And that's why you need your external supervisor. Yeah. Any last kind of tips, resources, things people should consider, books, whatever's? Sure. Um, I think the most, most important resource for students to new graduates to seasoned social workers is keeping a reflective journal. Now, whether that's pages and pages, which it was for me when I very first started, or just a couple of lines, which is what it is for me now because, you know, I'm a lot in a different space than I was back then but just being able to jot down a few notes this is something that I advise all my supervisees just jot some stuff down at the end of the day even if it's a couple of lines because that is not only um, important as a as a debriefing tool but I also think it's important as a professional development tool it's something that you can take into supervision and have a chat about and see where you may have some opportunities for growth. Um, So that's my kind of really number one piece of advice. And I guess my other, the other thing that I think is, is, is really um, cool now that we didn't have way back when is access to really supportive social media accounts. So um, there's a couple that um, I really like. Um, The new social worker on Instagram is very good. The nurturing social worker, that's a really good account. There's another account called Hey Amber Ray. She's not um, a social worker, but she has a really great way of really simplifying um, reflective activities. And I, I recommend her to um, my supervisees. Um, and, you know, um, if you can get hold of some supportive Facebook groups as well, that's a really good idea. At the same time, though, leave anything that's toxic. <laughs> Don't don't engage in spaces where that, that comparative suffering sort of gets out of control. And and I think at times a lot of us can be um, at risk of doing that, and we have to catch ourselves as well. Yeah. yeah, 
And and if you see yourself doing it and you catch yourself in it, don't do it. Just stop. Yeah, I like the idea of a reflective journal. My I am inconsistent with that. <laughs> but I do I do use an app, um, again, inconsistently, but um, that you can put a smile, it has different smiley faces and you put how you're feeling and different activities you've done for the day so you can start to track, oh, I feel, you know, I can see that the days that I have more smiley faces are the days I've also exercised or slept like, and you set your own little thing. Yeah. So every day you just go through and you, you tap on, which activities you've done and then you tap your mood and then you can start to see a trend. And I think even just for the chunks of time that I do it, I can start to see what energizes me and it might not be what energizes someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's actually a really good idea. And I think that's really nice. So for some people it is exercise and for me that is as well, but sometimes it's the type of exercise or, you know, I find I might have, I seem to have bigger smiley faces after a PD and then I did one of those character strength quizzes and my top strength was learning and curiosity. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I feel most energized when I'm learning something. Um, so, you know, then I can look at how do I incorporate that into my day, even if it's just a chapter of a book or an episode of a podcast on a topic I'm interested in. So I think they're really good activities to do to be a bit more active in your reflection and then implement something. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think all of those things are really great ideas. And I think, again, it's part of if we if we take care of ourselves, then we don't burn out. Burning out is a, a really awful space to be in. Clients know, your colleagues know, it, 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 and, and it affects people in a really, um, really significant way. So even doing those tiny little bits of self-care um, which may just be smiley face or sad face that day, um, is a really important way of being able to see where you are, um, where you might need some support um, and how you can make things better for yourself moving forward. Yeah, that's great. So I'll put in a link to some of those things in the show notes. Any kind of final tip? Um, I think that um, consider... Any investment you make in your social work career is an important investment in yourself. If you continue to see value in yourself, then you can see value in others. Oh, that's really lovely. Thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I imagine this is, I mean, we could talk about so many of these topics for a full <laughs> episode, so we might have to uh, have you back for maybe a bit more of a trauma episode or something. Sure, I would love that. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcast.